It's worth the wait for the fabulous Ian Lowe and Mary Graham. Oh my God, I'm so excited. To me, these people are sort of like both people I admire and also the elders in my community that I deeply respect, the folks that we have a lot to learn from. We're now gonna enter the critical parameters for the new economy. And we invited Ian Lowe and Mary Graham because I really couldn't think of any other folks more suited to talk to us about what they see are the most important elements of how we move into the future. Ian Lowe is going to be talking about climate change and Australia's ecological health, which I'm sure many of us would agree is one of the most critical parameters for all of our life's work into the next few decades. And the wonderful Mary Graham, who is an adjunct professor at University of Queensland, but is also um, a Kombu Mary Waka Waka woman, and considered, as you saw from the dancers, as, as a respected elder. And Mary's insights are, to me, quite a phenomenon, because as someone from a settler culture, hearing about what I often think of as the oldest, continuous, steady-state, Earth-centred culture on Earth, is quite the privilege. So without further ado, I'm going to invite Ian to come up and talk for 15, and Mary for 15, and then we'll talk to both of them with some questions and discussions. So Ian Lowe, Emeritus Professor of Everything, come on up. Thank you very much, Michelle. It's an honour to be here. Uh, I want to start with an apology. One of my pet hates is uh, people who go to conferences and speak and then run away before people can tell them they've been talking rubbish. Um, I've tried never to do that, but unfortunately my wonderful partner is not well, so I'll only be here this morning. I hope you'll forgive me for that. I want to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land we're meeting on and pay my respect to the elders past and present. That's become a bit of a ritual, but if we're talking about sustainable futures, we really should recognise that we share this land with the oldest continuous living culture on earth, who through their song and dance and story and ceremony have preserved the knowings that have allowed them to live sustainably on this continent for tens of thousands of years. And living sustainably on that continent is a lesson that we white fellows and recent arrivals need to learn as a matter of some urgency. Right, fundamental point. The future is not somewhere we're going, it's something we're creating by our decisions and actions, individually and collectively. There are many possible futures from which we should be trying to shape one that is at least in principle sustainable, if not forever, at least for the foreseeable future. That should not be a controversial statement. After all, the Council of Australian Governments, meeting in simulated majesty in Canberra 25 years ago, adopted a national strategy for ecologically sustainable development. So in principle, the Commonwealth and all state and territory governments are committed to a path of progress that does not impair the welfare of future generations, to equity within and between generations, to recognising the global dimension, to protecting biological diversity, maintaining ecological processes and systems. And of course you see every time a politician is interviewed that uh, these principles are right at the front of their mind and <laughs> inform every decision. How are we doing? Well, the answer is not very well. The UN report on progress towards sustainability ranked Australia 18th out of the 34 OECD nations, below Canada and New Zealand, even below the UK. We're among the worst in the entire OECD on parameters like resource use per head, waste production, greenhouse gases per unit of economic output, and the obesity rate, and well below average for poverty, inequality, the gender pay gap, and the percentage of women in elected office. 
Interestingly, the four Scandinavian nations are ranked one, two, three, and four in progress towards sustainability. The USA ranks 29th out of 34, uh, ahead of only Chile, Mexico, Turkey, Hungary, and Greece. Uh, and it's a reminder that only ideologues with no concern for the data could still be seeing the USA as a model to which we should aspire rather than the much more successful Scandinavian nations. Why are we getting it wrong? Well, I want to walk you through a quick little thought experiment. Imagine that we had a government that was committed to developing unsustainably. Now, you may think that no government, not even that of the lamented former Prime Minister, uh, would be committed to developing unsustainably, but suspend your disbelief just for a minute while I walk through this exercise. Imagine that's what we were trying to do. What would we do? Well, we'd start with rapid population growth because no species can expand without limit in a closed system. And if a natural increase of 150,000 a year wasn't enough for you, you could have uh, 200, 250,000 migrants coming in each year to fill alleged skill gaps when 20% of Australians are unemployed or unemployed. If you wanted to compound the impact of a growing population, you could have increasing consumption per person. And you could even celebrate that and see that as a measure of community well-being that we have the biggest new houses of any country in the world and so on. What else could you do? Well, you could deplete mineral resources. Oil would be a good one to start with. And if you wanted to ensure that depleting petroleum had maximum social impact, you could base the entire transport system around an implicit presumption that there will always be cheap petroleum fuels. You could overuse renewable resources like water and fisheries and forests. You could do significant environmental damage, maybe disrupt the climate, lose biodiversity. You could base your entire economy around a presumption that you will process more resources every year and produce ever-increasing quantities of waste. You could have policies that widen inequality so that uh, it's easier for a speculator to buy their 15th house than for a young person to buy their first one. And perhaps as a spiritual basis, you could either embrace crass, crass materialism or have a fundamentalist attitude in which ancient texts written thousands of years ago are seen as literally true and a good guide to how we live in the 21st century. I won't insult your intelligence by going through them all one by one, but I'd suggest that if a visitor from another galaxy happened upon our civilization, they'd be puzzled that we seem to have all the right policy settings to ensure that our path of development is not sustainable. At one level, there's nothing new about what I'm saying. The second report in the series on the global environmental outlook said our present course is unsustainable, postponing action is no longer an option. Although, as you know, it was the universal policy response. And in case you think that it's only scientists and greeny academics who are saying this sort of thing, the World Economic Forum, which is the big end of town at the global level, at its summit on the global agenda in 2008, said the recent crises are simply the canaries in the mine, the early warning signals that our economic system is simply not sustainable. Our decision makers focus on the road ahead, oblivious to the serious problems coming up behind. And if you can't see the fine print, it says objects in the mirror are closer than they appear. <laughs> this is the ecological bottom line. F 50 years ago, we were using about half of the sustainable productivity of natural systems. We're now using about 140 to 150%. We have already this year used up all that Earth natural systems can produce this year. We are in deficit. 
and every day digging ourselves deeper into that ecological crisis. I was given the topic of climate change, and I'll mention it briefly, but the point I want to make is that even if climate change were not happening, there would still be a critical need to invent a new economy and get back in balance with natural systems, because that's uh, only the most obvious signal that we are not living sustainably. The last 10,000 years has been a period of relative climate stability that's allowed human civilization to develop. We're now about one degree warmer than the average of the last 10,000 years and moving north at a rate of knots. And that's the global average, and Australia is on average about one degrees warmer, but there are parts of central Australia, northern South Australia, the middle of the Northern Territory, that are about two and a half degrees warmer on average now than they were 100 years ago. We're on track for four or five degrees increase in global temperature, which means somewhere between eight and 10 in the centre of Australia, basically, uh, we are working hard to make large areas of Australia uninhabitable. And it seems to me that uh, that's not a good aim to be having. But more generally, the International Geosphere Biosphere Program said that in terms of several environmental parameters, we're well outside the range of variability that's been exhibited for the last half million years. The nature of change is now occurring. Their magnitudes and rates of change are unprecedented. Michelle mentioned the idea of safe operating space. We are now well outside the safe operating space in flows of nitrogen and phosphorus, and I think most critically, in the loss of biological diversity. The Millennium Assessment compared the recent past, known extinctions in the last 100 years, extinctions per thousand species per millennium perhaps, with the fossil record on the left. And there's a bit of by guess and by guy about the data. That's a logarithmic scale, so each step is a factor of 10. But what's clear is that the rate of species loss in the last century is somewhere between 100 and 1,000 times the long-term average over the planet's history. So we are already in the sixth major extinction event, losing species at a rate comparable with those five past great extinction events. We know what's causing it, loss of habitat, introduced species, chemical pollution, all more or less proportional to human numbers and the consumption that our economy demands. And of course, that's now being augmented by climate change. The gloomy prognosis on the right is that the extinction rate this century will be somewhere between 10 and 100 times that of the last century. Towards the top end of that scale, we lose something like a third of all mammal, bird and amphibian species this century. So we're not talking about a minor problem. We are pulling random bricks out of the wall of life in complete ignorance as to when whole sections will collapse and we do that at our peril. In a sense, we are now seeing in action what the first report to the Club of Rome, Limits to Growth, warned us about 45 years ago. They said that if the rates of growth in population, resource use, industrial output, agricultural production and pollution were all to continue, we would reach limits within 100 years with the most likely result, economic and ecological collapse between 2030 and 2050. Dr. Graham Turner of CSIRO has compared uh, 40 years of data with those projections, and we're right on track. You know, want to have economic and ecological collapse in the next 20 years, we're going exactly the right way about it. Well, no one has to change, survival is optional. Uh, how have people responded to this gloomy prognosis? Richard Eckersley said there are three alternative responses. The most common is, is denial, which is not 
a river in Egypt, but uh, a mode of government thinking. Don't change, try to prove that change is not necessary, or commission a consultant, or listen to the Institute of Paid Advocacy who will tell you that business as usual is the best way of going about things. Second approach is avoidance. The great sage Woody Allen says, don't underestimate the power of distraction. Stage great global festivals, anything to take people's mind off the day-to-day, -day the real problems we face. Third approach is to take responsibility for change. Margaret Mead famously said, don't ever discount the possibility a small group of determined people can change the world because that's the only thing that ever has changed the world. We know what the driving forces of unsustainable development are, population growth, increasing consumption per person, but most critically the societal values that see those uh, not just as possible but desirable, almost essential. Dr Paul Raskin, who heads the TELUS Institute in Boston, argues that the values that have driven human development for the last hundred years or so have been domination of nature, consumerism and individualism. And he said that unholy trinity now needs to be replaced as a matter of urgency by values that are congruent with our goal of living in harmony with natural systems. So domination of nature, the approach summed up by a friend of mine in the phrase, white man speak with forklift truck, the idea that <laughs> any problem can be solved by more horsepower, needs to be replaced by ecological sensitivity, an awareness that natural systems have limits and a willingness to live within them. Consumerism, the idea that you are more fulfilled if you have more toys that you never use, needs to be replaced by an emphasis on quality of life. And individualism needs to be replaced by a recognition that we're all in this together. Climate change is the obvious demonstration of the fact that how we live in Queensland affects people in China and how people live in China affects us in Queensland. We need that new suite of values. And we need a new vision, a new picture. I was at a conference about 20 years ago at which a then Premier uh, put up this Venn diagram to show that he wasn't just a crass opportunist but a broad political thinker, uh, saying that the three domains of the economic, the social and the environmental needed to be balanced. I said I thought the problem was that the Venn diagram most politicians have is what I call the pig-headed model, <laughs> in which the economy is the main game like the face of a pig and society and environment are minor protuberances like the ears. Uh, and if that's your model, you think that if only the gross domestic product can be made sufficiently gross, then all our other problems can be solved. And of course, if that's your model, you only get traction on social or environmental issues if you can demonstrate economic consequences. Of course, markets give us things that many of us want, but the existence of the advertising industry is a demonstration that many of the things the market provides we don't want or need, but have to be persuaded by dishonest psychological trickery uh, to go out and buy. Whereas natural systems give us the things that we absolutely need, breathable air, drinkable water, the capacity to produce our food, as well as our sense of place and the spiritual refreshment we get from natural systems. If you look at the Earth from space, you can't see the economy. <laughs> and if you take that as your starting point, you come up with what I think is the only rational Venn diagram. One that sees the economy as a part of society, quite an important part, but there are things we expect from society, uh, our culture, our sense of place, security, companionship and love, which are not even in principle part of the economy. 
and our society is totally enclosed within and totally dependent on natural systems. Now, even in a friendly gathering like this, I can see a few people thinking this is a bit utopian, and in one sense it, it is, but I wanted to remind you that all of the great developments in human history have been derided as utopian when they were first being proposed. 200 years ago, it was utopian to be arguing for the end of slavery, and the abolitionists were told they were economically naive because no society could function without slave labour. A hundred years ago, in most countries, it was still utopian to be arguing that women should have the vote. And the bearded patriarchs in the state parliament were saying society would crumble if such unreliable people could vote. <laughs> That's ancient history. But I remind you, only 30 years ago, it was utopian to be dreaming of Berlin without the wall, or South Africa without apartheid, or an apology to stolen generations, or an African-American being elected US president, or such minor things as good coffee and civilised licensing laws in Queensland. <laughs> in fact, if you think about it, practically all features of modern life were once seen as utopian, and we have them because people didn't accept the world they lived in was as good as it got, but worked purposefully for a better world. And where their work had a moral dimension, it was more likely to succeed in getting rid of slavery, in giving women the vote. And I believe our work now has the moral dimension of shifting the trajectory of human development from a path that was not sustainable to one that could be. In arguing this, we're often told that we're trying to spoil the party. And I think Lester Thurow said it's, it's hard to tell people the party's over if they haven't got to the bar yet. <laughs> And in one sense, that's right, but what we're really telling them about is a new party. And it's a better party because it won't run out of food and drink, it won't leave us with a nasty hangover, the neighbours won't be looking enviously through the windows or throwing rocks on the roof because they'll be invited in, and it's a party that our children and our grandchildren will be able to enjoy when we're no longer here, a party we can responsibly enjoy. I reminded you at the start that our decisions shape the future, the aim should be one that's sustainable. That has many dimensions, but working towards it is nothing less than our responsibility to the countless millions of other species that we share this planet with and the future generations for whom we hold it in trust. Thank you very much.